Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name is Will Holden, and today I am joined by Andy Malbin. How are you doing, buddy? Hi, man. Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Good, good. And Mark Wall, how are you doing? Yeah, likewise, I'm okay. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, today we are talking about the film Under the Silver Lake, the album Margarine Eclipse. And the top five list, the top five black and white films. Uh, these were Mark's picks. Right, well, let's get into the film Under the Silver Lake. So this is a 2018 film directed and written by, yeah, and written by David Robert Mitchell, starring Andrew uh, Garfield, Wendy Vanderhoevel, uh, Riley Keough, Topher Grace, and others. What the... Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could be any of this be connected to Sarah? I'll give you a brief synopsis straight from uh, IMDb's mouth to yours, to your ears. Sam, a disenchanted young man, finds a mysterious woman swimming in his apartment's pool one night. The next morning, she disappears. Sam sets off across LA to find her. And along the way, he uncovers a conspiracy far more bizarre. It's probably better than I would have written for it anyway. Mark, was there any particular reason of going for this film for you? Just continuing the run of the kind of movie we seem to seem to select quite a bit. But I, I do think uh, there was specifically after last week's, where obviously, as, as we know, I, uh, I didn't like it very much. Nope. So I thought this one might be interesting because I'd watched it about a few months ago. And I won't say what I thought of it this time yet. <laughs> but it's uh, the first time around that, you know, it certainly landed for me better than the uh, the Kaufman, even though I have to say, again, I didn't fully understand the messages it was probably trying to get across. But I thought it would be interesting to find out why the one just doesn't land for me at all and the other maybe does. We'll, we'll find oh, out if that's still okay. the case. But uh, what did you think of it, Will? I quite enjoyed this. I think it's got, as you said, it's got a lot of the makeup of the things that I think we broadly go for. And I do enjoy that kind of cinema that is made almost purposely for a niche market. 
I think it can be Marmite, and I think sometimes it can really not work. And I think for the most part, this does for me. Uh, I do have criticisms of it. Uh, I think it starts really strong. I think the opening maybe hours, but roughly the first kind of third, I guess, I think is really, really good. I actually think the end, like, it is played out as a kind of modern noir conspiracy mystery type of thing. I found the answer to the mystery actually quite satisfying enough for the purpose of the story. I think in a lot of cases, you can wind up to a mystery and just not have a good answer. It didn't go off the rails and and go really bonkers, but it also didn't feel entirely inconsequential. I think it fit the vibe of the film. Have you got any uh, overarching thoughts, Andy? Yeah, I just enjoyed it all the way through. Like, actually, the talking about the ending and stuff, the kind of mystery was... I can't say I was that invested in the plot. Like, it almost didn't matter that much to me. I just kind of enjoyed the journey. Because yeah, I don't I don't think it's a perfect film. Like, I didn't really understand. Whereas with last week's, I was saying, like, it stayed with me a bit, and I was trying to... I wanted <laughs> to piece together the plot and things like that. Whereas this week, it mattered less to me. Like, I think there's some sort of overarching theme of like you obviously mentioned conspiracy theories definitely but there's this kind of theme of like how women are treated particularly in the kind of film industry and things like that I don't really know what his point was well yeah no I mean I I agree I agree with that though actually I, I kind of had the same feeling that it's almost gratuitously like sexualizes women but I think I think it's done with a point. Yeah, I just so don't do think I. he manages. I just don't think he manages to get the point across by the end of the film. I, I just. No. I think the point is, is like, look how horribly women are treated in Hollywood. But yeah, exactly. It, but it, it just, doesn't really nail that, does he? No, I just don't think it lands. I think the intention is there. I don't think it's done for a bad reason. And like, there's but, lots of there's lots of references to the homeless as well, but I don't really know what his point was on that. But I, I just enjoyed the journey of it enough. Like it was. The plot was is just a labyrinth of ideas, like it just goes all over the place. The main character isn't especially likable, but the kind of the weird conspiracy theories that he have has seemed to be true most of the time. I don't really know what that's a comment on. So yeah, I've got plenty of criticisms of it, but but as an overall, just enjoying it from start to finish. But I, I didn't feel like it dragged at all. Like the length of it was fine. What two hours, fifteen minutes or something? Yeah, it was a real breeze to watch. Definitely. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sort of. I wasn't watching the time. I just sort of enjoyed it, start to finish, despite not really fully understanding a lot of its point or what it was talking about. Yeah, I, I no, I think I agree with you there. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily misunderstand the plot in terms of A to B. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes he would speak to people, and I think. Like, am I supposed to know who this person is? Because his character does. So I think perhaps it's a little underwritten in those moments where, like, how does he end up speaking to X person? I think doesn't always seem obvious. Like, by the end, I kind of understood where all the pieces fell. 
But you're right, whatever his kind of point is, other than just sort of isn't LA shit. And like it just and full of full of weirdos <laughs> seems to be his point. I thought that you're right, like Andrew Garfield, I think is good in it. And I think his character is a dickhead to most people around him, but is really like quite watchable. He's someone who's I enjoy just watching. Yeah, be it be, being a bad person. <laughs> I want to hear what I want to hear what Mark's uh, what Mark's opinion was on second watch, and then I'll dig into what I thought of Andrew Garfield. I think it dipped very slightly for me, but the first time around, I was, you know, very positive. And I think the reason it dipped possibly was because I was trying to sort of figure out those things that you were just talking about. What is its messages? And yeah, I'm I'm with you. Other than a you know vague kind of thing of uh, women are treated like shit, couldn't really get much more out of it than that in terms of the messages. And it doesn't really, in terms of following Garfield's character. I mean, he's kind of just shown like a child, like a teenage boy throughout, isn't he? Like there's always stuff with his like job and him not having one. And that never seems to be a concern. His only concern throughout the entire thing is A, getting laid and B, looking into these conspiracies. But as far as I could tell, he doesn't really have a character arc. At the end of the film, he's he's pretty much exactly the same guy as he is at the start. I don't know if there's a message behind that either. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, he doesn't evolve, does he? He doesn't kind of get anywhere. You're right as well. Like, he doesn't... There's lots of things that come up that are never really talked about in terms of, like, there could be a potential character arc. I mean, he loses his flat as well. Yeah. Right, by the end. And he, like, he begs for an extra day to find the rent money and then spends that day at no point trying to find any money. Like, <laughs> and nothing, mm-hmm. nothing seems to interest him or, yeah, things have consequences in his life, but he doesn't care about it. No, indeed. And then it becomes a question of, well, does does that matter? And I think ultimately, in this case, it doesn't that much because, as you say, the journey is really quite fun. And the film has a great style to it. It's quite kinetic and energetic and the camera always seems to be moving and it's uh, it's quite stylish. And yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned about Garfield, so I, let, let's let's go on to that. What, what did you think regarding him? I've He's one of those people that, despite being like quite popular, I've seen him in almost nothing. He's in, um, what's a Facebook film called? Social Network. Thanks. He's in Social Network, isn't he? He's pretty good in that, actually, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not sure I've seen him in anything else apart from that. I've not seen his Spider-Man films. I was surprised how much I liked him in it. I thought he was really, really good. Because it's quite a, like, it's not a complex character, but there's lots of different sort of aspects to him. He's playing the role, even if he's not actually, but he's playing the role of, like, the detective in a film noir. (laughs) But, yeah, there's, like, huge amounts of, like, creepiness to his character. There's bits of humour in that as well. I really, like, I laughed out loud. When he sees the people that break into um, the house where the girl disappears and he's chasing after them, when he, like, runs 
down that hill past loads of people and then stops and hides behind a tree and then like get, gets that like pedalo and like is following after them there's another bit as well when he's at that party in the swimming pool and he's hiding behind a beach ball yeah, I, re- awesome. I really laughed at those i thought it was a really strong performance i was surprised how good i thought he was yeah, I'd be interested in seeing just generally more Garfield, like just seeing what his what else he's got in the bag. Because as I, say, I okay. have seen the the first of his Spider Man films, and it's okay. And I think he's probably one of the best parts about it. Like he's charismatic and he's pretty easy to watch. So yeah, be interested in more Garfield. I liked uh, at least early on. Maybe I just stopped noticing later on, but early they used quite a few classic kind of noir cinema tropes the first time you meet sarah she has the kind of uh, light band across her eyes as those old shots were lit the music is really varied but in a few places has that very like big orchestra classical very romantic yeah it's varied because it's interspersed with bits of kind of modern day pop but mm. i really like the like neo-noir sort of score it's, it's yeah, like a, it's great. Yeah, it's like a it's a proper throwback. It's like a score to a like Raymond Chandler, Humphrey Bogart thing. Yeah, it is. It works really well with it. It's quite interesting because um, I don't know if it came up in the uh, video game soundtrack thing, but it's by Disaster Piece. Yeah, I also uh, yeah checked out the soundtrack and saw it was by Disaster Piece. I don't know how much of it, like whether it's all him or whether some of it has been clipped out of other stuff but just listening to a little bit definitely some of the orchestral bits are his work it it pretty much is him like he works with an orchestrator or whatever but there was a feature about it on the um on the blu-ray and that's uh, rad when we were first setting up this podcast and trying to think what a like theme tune would be mm -hmm. i sent you a podcast of which theme tune i like and that's also a disaster piece oh was that the uh yeah fair play no, good, good on him. To be honest, I'd, I'd, and you wouldn't have thought so. It's it's a it's a really decent score. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like that. His, his like ringtone is little eight bit chip tune, which I think is what Disaster Piece is probably best known at. Yeah, I think this is this is one of the things I wanted to mention, and perhaps this is why, in certain regards, this worked for me more than last week. So all all the cultural reference points are right down our alleys, aren't they? You know, the fact that the, uh, the a map to Zelda 1 from an old Nintendo magazine <laughs> provides the, uh, you know, the answer, like the, the link to the final bit of the mystery. I mean, that's... Link, pun intended. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, but stuff like that, I mean, I guess, you know, for me, that works better than, you know, two characters talking about a highbrow 70s movie, but that's... It's a little bit unfair, really, because it's just it happens to be stuff that I enjoy. But it, it does help, you know, just a scene of him playing Mario 2 or whatever. Yeah. It's just en- immediately endearing. And I like I say, you either get the references or you don't. And I don't think it's, I don't think there's any need to kind of apologize if they are just right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> well, yeah, I enjoy this because it really ticks my boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the comparisons to last week's film. I get why there's a comparison there. Like, they're both very, I don't know, kind of anti-Hollywood blockbuster films. Mm -hmm. Quite a bit avant-garde and 
but I, they're very like they're tonally completely different. Yeah, um, they they are for sure, and, uh, and like they're different in almost every respect. Like they're kind of mm-hmm. visually different. They're like they set out to do very different things. I think this is supposed to be more satirical, whereas mm-hmm. the film last week is is more kind of romanticized and kind of poignant and and like you can it doesn't matter whether that hits the mark or completely like misses the mark for you i just think it's there isn't that many comparisons i think in in kind of style of film just because you like one doesn't mean you'll like the other no i think what i'd say though is is last week's kind of took a horror film as its as its core basis for the story it was trying to tell this one sort of took a you know neo-noir mystery as its core and i think this one executes that premise as a lone thing better than last week's did as a horror film if that makes any sense it does you just view them without the like what is the messages behind it what what does it all mean i think this week's is more successful as a viewing experience on it's just taken in and of itself I don't want to spend ages talking about last week's film. Yeah, I I know, I know. But I think that, I think that's kind of the point. Like, I think a lot of last week's film was set up in that kind of horror thriller vibe. And that wasn't what it was. Like, it had lots of aspects of that, but by the end of it, it wasn't that at all. Like, I had criticisms of that, whereas this film is much more straightforward in terms of, I, I agree with you, Will. Like, I thought the first hour was really strong. And it kind of sets you on a path and it stays on that path. Like there's no mm-hmm. kind of misleading. Not a lot of deviation, no. Yeah, however like complicated and sort of complex the plot was, it it doesn't sort of change tonally. It is and still... in terms of plot complexity, it's really just him going from like person to person, yep. gaining small snippets of information. As I said at the beginning, though, I, I'm actually kind of relatively satisfied with with what the answer is, which is that sort of insane billionaires in LA are building themselves death bunkers so they can sort of join some sort of cult. I guess if I'm looking for any message, that idea that like even with all the money and power, you can reject the world so much that you would rather like sort of follow this cult than just face it. But it tied into that kind of mad LA, you know, kind of out of control vibe that I think we hear about sometimes. There are so many other elements, though. I really, you know, like the beware the dog killer and the owl's kiss and all of that. No idea what those things are. They're well entertaining, but um, I don't know for what they half, mean. For what, like what? half a minute, I was hopeful. You're going to find out that Sam was the dog killer. I thought that'd be a, I thought that'd be a cool little twist, and it like pretty much just went away as a theory for me almost immediately. It was when the um, the homeless king uh, locks him up. Yeah, he's got the dog biscuits, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got the dog biscuit, and he like questions him why he's got the dog biscuits, and it's like the one time Andrew Garfield's character shows a little bit of like actual emotion about stuff, really, and um, because of his dog. Yeah, and it sort of explains that away. And for a second, I thought it was going to be like a a big (laughs) twist reveal, and I thought that would be ace. (laughs) 
It doesn't say that's not the case. I think that's like no. there were still a possibility that he is. Yeah. You mentioned there with like the owl's kiss as well. And I mean, there's a point where, at least from the viewer's point of view, we watch him watch some CCTV of the owl's kiss actually like killing a guy. Because as you as you said, Andy, like he's right about a huge amount of the conspiracies that he thinks are going on, the messages he thinks he sees. He's ultimately right about. Having said that, is there anybody else? There's nobody ever with him down in the in the tunnels. Like the king leads him there, and then obviously he meets people down there. And he takes a hallucinogenic biscuit about halfway through. I'm just wondering, is there <laughs> is there room here that there's a certain point in the film where the rest of it is just completely in his head? Absolutely. I feel like if that was... Least, I think if that were the case, I'd be disappointed, I think, if that if that were the, the rub of the green. But. I, I just think that if you're sort of setting out a film to have those sort of potential plot lines, you need to leave a couple of clues in there, and I don't think there really is. Like, just a, just a little question of... It's why I don't think he is supposed to be the dog killer, because there's no yeah. real hint that he is. Like, that's the only one. Just sort of um, applying it to the story rather than <laughs> rather yeah, being given it. And I don't mind there just being a couple of references that makes you think it. Like you don't have to sort of spell it out, but just to add a little bit of grey and a little bit of mystery. And you don't have to explain it at the end either, but I don't think it does hint at those things. But there must be some things that that just don't that don't happen, that aren't real. There's like scenes where he sees the seven five one just outside on the uh sports stadium mm-hmm. on a like um, scoreboard yeah yeah when he's following the girls and stuff and i don't know if that comes back at all but there's there's a load of stuff that is just wild coincidence and yeah well, i don't know like it's, it's it's built up about conspiracy theories like all of it is absolute nonsense i mean he finds the map in a box of cereal and there's no yep. reason for him to i'd Unless I miss something, there's no reason for him to suddenly open a box of cereal to find the answer that he's been searching for, is there? So if if I remember rightly, like he's reading a graphic novel yeah. written by the guy who gives him the cereal. Yeah. Who says, like, I, I'm, um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure cereal, a reason why that. he's given, but he just says, like, I'm pretty convinced everything is about this map on the back of the box. And Garfield, yeah. I can't remember, through a moment of lucidity, thinks, oh, it's the map in the box, not the map on the box that becomes the answer. I forgot he gave him the map, to be honest. That does make marginally more sense. That's it. It's only marginal, though. Like, it, it <laughs> there's connective tissue there, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> but you sort of then he relates through wild leaps, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Just intuitive time. leaps. It's difficult. I don't I don't really know how much there is to say about it. It's um there's elements of Big Lebowski as well. And obviously we seemingly say it every week, but David Lynch again. Yeah. Obviously. Um yeah, yeah I can see like Mulholland Drive in there. Big Lebowski, I mean it's it's that kind of sp- like stoner culture, isn't it? It kind of leads itself into a lot of the like comedy and mm. yeah, and he he kind of reminds me a little bit of a teenage dude, I guess. Yeah, the way he sort of acts throughout. I was just gonna say that there's a load of nods to other movies and stuff within the film as well, which is just kind of fun. 
Yeah. The opening is, is basically just rear window, isn't it? It's just sitting on his balcony <laughs> with binoculars. And then there's like, there's the grave of Hitchcock later on. Yeah. Again, I don't, it shouldn't really add anything, but it's just fun. Fun spotting all those little details and stuff. And the Spider- Spider-Man are. reference is good in there. Yeah, well. that was great. The comic right. book stuck <laughs> in his hand trying to shake it off. That's uh, pretty enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what are we going to score this film? Andy, do you want to kick us off? Uh, it's a toughie. I think I'm going to go with a seven. Because I think like, I've been pretty positive about it, and I enjoyed the watching of it, sort of from start to finish. But like, would I watch it again? I'm not sure I get anything more out of it watching it again. Did I understand it? No. Do I care about trying to find out what it was about? Not really. Um, but then I really enjoyed it, and I thought Andrew, Andrew Garfield was excellent. Cinematography was good. The music was excellent. So seven feels about right. I, I think it's better than average. It's uh, it's worth a watch. Yeah, definitely that. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to be ever so slightly more positive and give it an eight. And the basis for that is I too had a very enjoyable watch. I'm going to give it an extra point sort of for ambition, I guess. I think it's a real like unpolished gem that there are a lot of really cool ideas in there that i really like and as you said it's made well it watches really well the time flies by it just doesn't quite make it but i do appreciate the attempt 100 percent agree with that i think like a film should be positively viewed for its am- for slightly failing its ambition when there's so yeah. many unambitious films out there that's it trying and failing is so much better than not trying <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i'll give it a little boost just for that all right marco your film what do you want to score it well just picking up on the ambition thing uh the director previous film was uh it follows have you heard of that one the the horror movie heard I of it I, sorry i remember it getting good reception but i haven't actually seen it yeah it, it did and again it had a kind of allegory to it which was just, you know, about STDs, basically. It was a lot more obvious. And I think it's it's kind of cool that he... It was quite big, I think, and it was quite critically acclaimed. And he could have just sort of carried on in that vein, but instead he just did an absolutely mad neo-noir. So I do respect that, but I, I do think it... It probably went from an eight to a seven for me on, on second viewing, I think. I, I hoped that there would be more that clicked into gear the second time around. But yeah, I just had kind of the same experience, but obviously knew sort of what was going to happen and it kind of spoiled all the cool surprises, I guess. But but good, another good uh, film choice, Marco. Yeah, I never would have seen it. So yeah, good pick. Like I said, I'd never heard it's, of it. It's that I'm not going to pick a, a weird one for a while. Next time, completely Termin- different approach. Terminator 2. Yeah, man. <laughs> Straight down the middle. <laughs> Why the hell not? <laughs> Uh, so, are we ready to move on to the album? Yes, I'll tell, so. a, I'll tell you that as a resounding yes. Which is Margarine Eclipse by Stereo Lab. Yeah. 
again, Mark, I'm going to throw it to you. Any reason why you picked this album this time around? Stereo Lab are a band I was sort of familiar with and never really listened to them. And they sounded like they could really be kind of up my alley. But this, yeah, this was more of a blind pick rather than one I was familiar with. Yeah, cool. A lot, a lot of people love it, that love this band, from what I can gather. It's if a name I'm familiar with, but I'd never listened to them before. Yeah. When I first started listening to it, I thought, this is a really marked pick. It's got a kind of, kind of swinging 60s French vibe. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that kind of tonal perspective, I really, really enjoyed it. Like, I found it a very easy album to listen to. I think in there lies my kind of biggest problem as well with it, though, is I find it quite forgettable. Like I, Because it all sounded within a kind of rough tonal lane, nothing really stood out that much. I think I can still see a, a rough... There are songs I prefer and songs I like less, but everything fits within quite a narrow field for me, I think. What's your take on it? I completely agree with that. I found this album really difficult because I try not to just say, like, I like something that I don't like something. Like, I try and look at it sort of musically. And it is musically interesting. Like, there are there are plenty of things that I could pick out where I think, like, that's a interesting choice that you've made. Like, there's loads of little counter melodies going on. Yeah, like sort of time signature changes and there's interesting stuff going on all the time and I don't hate their overall sound I plain didn't like it I found it really difficult to listen to I put it on at work once when I was working on my own and I got through about five tracks and I was just bored I didn't latch onto anything about it I found it difficult to keep going back to and listening to like actively because I don't mind putting it on in the background but I'd listened to like two songs and I my, I just wasn't paying any sort of interest to it anymore. I think like, I, <laughs> I just I basically didn't like it and I'm gonna to struggle to reason why I didn't like yeah. it. <laughs> I think I had a similar experience, but just on the ever so slightly more positive side of the coin is that I did I did enjoy that general sound. I will absolutely agree with you though, like my mind wandered. This is not an album that got caught my attention. And it would be those little bits of interest, those interesting chord changes or melodies or what have you that would just grasp my attention every so often. And then I would listen to another, you know, sort of few minutes or whatever until my mind would wander. Yeah. I, just... not, I didn't find those moments that ever grabbed me. It wasn't like this interesting chord change grabbed me and pulled me back in. That never happened. Like it was always just meandering and... And, and like I say, like there are sort of musically interesting things. It's not super boring, but I found it pretty boring. <laughs> nothing, nothing grabbed me. Anyway, Mark, what did you think? Yeah. So, as Will said, the uh, that the stuff you described, the whole kind of RT Euro sound, I was I was expecting to to love it. And first listen kind of passed me by. Second, third, and I'm not talking about the whole album as well because I don't think I did that really, maybe once. I started to think, oh, this is like super, super classy. Like it's ear candy, basically. 
if you listen to it on earphones, there's just a stereo absolute wash of like different sounds and it like I was like this is this is great like what what a band what a discovery yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> funnily enough I had a very similar experience we were driving the other day and I put on a couple of tracks I was thinking like oh yeah I'm on to a winner here so I played played a couple of songs I was sort of like oh I don't know actually like I went back to it today and it, it sealed the deal like I'm I've gone huge negative on this, and I think I can explain why. <laughs> I don't know if you you probably didn't because you probably weren't invested enough. Like, I was interested. I did a bit of research. Now, this was their first album without one of their core members, who was another female singer. Yeah, I did a bit um, a bit of wider reading. I heard that their their other singer had, had suddenly died. I think one of the, one of the songs literally starts with them saying goodbye, Mary. Mary was the, the name of the member who passed away. Yeah, was it um, like motorcycle accident as well? And there's a track called like Hillbilly. Yeah. Motorbike. Quite possibly. But I mean, all, all that is in a bit of a bit of an aside to the fact that, particularly that song, but just in general, the major issue with this album, maybe this band, just that there's zero emotion. There's nothing. I think it's just like I think for me the vocals are a big part of that because there's nothing like necessarily wrong with her vocals and quite a nice tone. It's it's all just in the middle. Like I don't think there's any sort of emotional like variety at all in the vocals. Like it's just mm. it's just a nice tone that goes throughout and it's all pleasant enough, but just that's nothingy for me. That's right, and then. So, okay, and I don't think the vocal melodies are massively strong in general. There's a couple of moments, there's a couple of songs I do like, we'll get to those later, but they do have that trick of, like you say, having a tempo change or a feel change, and that's cool, but, I mean, a lot of it reminded of me sitting at a laptop and sort of trying to work out a song and then getting to a point and just being like, I don't know what to do. So you just sort of change it for the sake of it you know add on a pointless outro which adds nothing and the first couple of times it's quite cool because it's got that instant thing of like oh this song's going off in a new direction great but actually on repeat listens it doesn't it doesn't work for me i mean there's times where it literally just fades in a a new section it's just like well there's no art to that it just sounds like you've sat there copy and pasted a load of stuff, added some new elements on here and there, and then you've got to a bit, it's like, well, we've copied and pasted about three minutes worth, so we better, like, add in a new bit now. I think it's amazing. very mathematically made. Yeah, I think it's amazing the amount of times that you've got, like, like a song that starts off with quite a lot of kind of synth pad and, like, synth bass and things like that, and then it'll get a little heavier and add, like, a few, you know, guitars in there and stuff. And still sounds the same, but you've changed the instrumentation, <laughs> yeah, and mm-hmm. you've kind of slightly changed the feel a bit. But even when it gets heavier, it never gets heavy, and it still sits just within that sort of medium range for me, where it's where it's not it's very compressed. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I do. I agree with you. Like the, there is a complete lack of emotion. And I also agree with you, Andy, that it's it comes from the fact the vocals are that almost kind of like lazily sung 
it doesn't it doesn't rankle me quite as much like i i don't think i i don't think i need the emotion in this style um and i i often quite like that sort of lazy cool vocal of uh, almost being too cool to sing like i kind of, sort of like that vibe and nonetheless like i think you're right i think ultimately this this album suffers a little bit in the same way that little tybee did that for me at least i think there are pieces that i really like within individual songs but on the whole like I, I can barely remember which song is which if i'm honest with you like i'm looking at the track listing now and trying to remember there are three yeah i feel a bit bad about it now because i didn't know the story about the uh the, the motorbike crash but actually like margarine melody hillbilly motorbike and feel and triple which mm-hmm. are kind of the third fourth yeah, and fifth end. from end end tracks yeah i just i just think are extra special nothing like they are <laughs> to criticize the whole album of that but i think those three songs in particular just uh, they go absolutely nowhere i think that's how i feel about the whole album yeah i do have a slightly <laughs> more positive spin i mean having said that like talking about it and you, you're saying the the negatives and I have to agree. Like I, I, I've got uh, no position, nor desire to to defend it against those points. But in general, when it when it when it was just like listening on the train, and I wasn't really listening, it was perfectly pleasant background music. Maybe that's not much of a positive. I do, <laughs> yeah, no, I do, that's it. That's... like I don't mind their overall sound. Like I sort of imagined because it feels quite summery music. I sort of imagined like if I was sitting at a outside at a barbecue and somebody put on this album that's hilarious i did that <laughs> i was gonna mention this thing as the barbecue test and you just pulled uh, <laughs> on my thunder but it would fail the barbecue test what, like, what do you in, want from a barbecue test i need to dig deeper into your barbecue test i don't, I don't want to derail andy's full <laughs> it wasn't much of a point really it was just like if it was something that was in the background and i didn't have to actively listen to it and by the way, I'm not going to contravene you if you're going to say that like you want something better at a barbecue because <laughs> I would want to listen to something else. But if it was just on in the background and it was just giving that general summery vibe, then mm. I think like, yeah, it probably does that for me. Like it's not, I don't mind their sound. I, I just think if I have to actively listen to it, I just get instantly bored. Anyway, Mark, barbecue test. Oh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it, mate. <laughs> You've just uh, said exactly what I was going to. I think um, it fails the barbecue test in that having the last summer or whatever, when we had one at Wheels, there was a few tunes that came on, even when you're talking and stuff. It's like someone grabs you and they're like, oh, what, what, who's that? You know, make a little mental note of it, move on. But this wouldn't do that, I don't think. Sure. Don't think you know, and that's not necessarily, again, it would be entirely pleasant, but it wouldn't jump out to you. Um, I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah, from that perspective, definitely, you're not going to listen to it for the first time and think, "I need to, I need to track down more of this." In a similar way, yeah. I kind of think that about my. I've started grading things a little bit according to. We've said it before. I think we've all got one, but you know, your big playlist on Spotify, where mm-hmm. I'll just put, I'll just put any song on that I like, and I listen to that playlist all the time when I don't know what to listen to, and it means you just get an absolute mix of stuff nothing off this album is going on that playlist and like even little tybee i didn't really like the record and there was still one song that i really liked off it enough to put on there 
Mm-hmm. I've my got playlist. a song I really like. Go I was going to say, my playlist is made up of almost all complete albums. So yeah, you've I do got songs, to have, I don't do albums. You've got to have at least like 60% of an album that's good for me for, to, just to make it to the, the playlist. It's just that it'd be a wildly different playlist if I went for albums. We've gone, we've gone for, for different tacks. I think they're both valid. <laughs> yeah, the amount of one-it wonders that I've got on there. I don't even mean one-it wonders in terms of popularity, just in terms of that I like one song. Yeah, again, maybe just part of my broad, broader neurosis. But if you make one song that I like and then I listen to the album and the other nine songs are awful, then I don't like the one song anymore. Yeah, madness. Like, I, I, you've, you've I pick albums for this podcast almost entirely on the basis of flicking through that playlist and picking out a song <laughs> from someone that I've not listened to the rest of the album of. I don't do playlists. I'm a purist. <laughs> you've got to step um, into the modern world, man. You've got to be more indecisive. You know, yeah. just sit there sometimes and go, I have fucking no idea what I want to listen to. Actually, all the time. <laughs> yeah, so you have the playlist and you play yeah. it until it hits the point where you go, I love this uh, song, I want to listen to them. <laughs> and then yeah, you put that this on is the instead. album I want to listen to, absolutely. I usually listen to about five songs until I hear something that goes, I'll listen yeah. to them instead. <laughs> I do get that. I, w- I want to talk about the song that I liked. Um, go for it, buddy. Track four, Cosmic Country Noir, I thought was very cool. It it isn't all that different to some of the others, but I actually thought the chord progression was a bit nicer. There was a nice kind of guitar sound, and it's one of the few times where they do the split melody, and it's great. Just like a proper... It bordered on actually having a bit of emotional quality to me. And then it really annoys me because it's the one time they hit it, they do it for about a minute. They continue the chord sequence and change the melody to a worse one. What the hell? And then they just skip to a random outro, which, um, yeah. I, but overall, just that first minute is is great. Really I great. Listened, I listened to that song uh, about an hour and a half ago because... I thought I better find what my favorite track is. Mm-hmm. And I could think of one track and I knew it was around like three, four, or five. And I started at four. Mm-hmm. And uh I listened to the whole thing and thought, yeah, that's not it. That's, <laughs> that's not the one I was looking for. I really like it. I think it's it's a it's a lovely little melody in that one. Mm. <laughs> Will, what's your favorite? That's the problem, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go through the tracks again and even just listen to the intros and remember what they are, and I'm struggling. <laughs> it, like you say, I think it's within that first handful of the album. It might even be the first song. It kind of opens with a big drum fill and is a bit more, despite it's got the album. a cool bass groove. Yeah, it's got a cool bass groove, just maybe a bit more kind of groovy, a bit more expressive than other bits of the album. I think I do think it opens with a bit of a bit of a bang so yeah i'll go for vonal declosion i don't mind that song either it's just got that annoying bit you know where it gets to the um like the keyboard comes in and sort of takes over the melody sure that's an example of the the chord sequence is just bland as hell every single time i hear it i want the notes to go to a different note and it it never does and it, it still annoys me every single time yeah all, all i'll say 
in closing, I suppose, is that I still actually don't completely write off this band. Um, initially, I was quite excited by it because I did think it sounded production-wise really great. Even like you say, that drum fill at the start, it just comes in on one side, and then there's another at the other side, and mm-hmm. it just all kicks in. I do think it's it's weird because it, it's so lushly produced when you're listening to it on earphones, and yet when you transfer it to speakers, it just loses everything. Yeah, you commented on it earlier, and I, I forgot to, to say anything. But yeah, I agree with you about like the stereo stuff is often quite interesting, like where they've placed vocals and where mm-hmm. certain instruments pop up from. It is a different experience on headphones, and I, and I think you're right. It's it's probably the best way to go about listening to it. I'd kind of gonna, definitely, yeah. I'd kind of agree with that. But yeah, I, I don't I don't write them off. I feel like you know this isn't their like highest rated album or anything like that, and. Uh, I did listen to some other tracks off other records and I think they've probably got three or four good songs, an album perhaps, although this mm-hmm. one, I don't know, there probably are three or four songs that I liked, did, didn't necessarily love them, but, you know, I did quite like them. As you say, it's uh, it's hardly ugly. It's not obnoxious. Yeah, it's just a little bit, little bit bland. But then again, I do kind of really dig that that whole European flavour. Yeah, if they can nail that better on another record, then I'm I'm maybe back in. They have maybe a bit more interesting orchestration, or maybe just someone actually playing a fucking solo or something. Or yeah, could it be a case, like in contrast to the film, that this is maybe a lack of ambition? I don't know, man. It's quite ambitious. There's there's a there's almost too much going on. Very quickly, I will say my favourite song was uh, track three. That was the one I was trying to find, uh, Southern Stars. Southern Stars, yeah. Entirely on the basis that I found it more memorable, like I remembered the melody from it, but it sort of barely has a chorus. Like The thing that I remembered was the, was the verses, and yeah, it's got a really like wishy-washy sort of chorus to it. But actually, the vocal melody I found like fairly memorable and like interesting-ish. So yeah, that was the one that I was trying to find when I listened to track four. But it's not a super huge positive for me on it. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, um, sorry to Stereo Lab, but shall we? Uh, shall we give them their scores on the doors? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think I'm probably going to give it the best score. Um, and even then, I think when I first came into today, I was probably looking at a six. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually, I've agreed with some of your criticisms I hadn't considered. I'm just going to give it a bang average five. I'm going to put it right in the middle. Interesting. I don't think you'll be the best because I'm going to predict that Mark will give it a higher rating than five. Mm. Well, well it's tough because... I'm thinking about what I've given previous records and uh, the Matt Berry, I think I gave a five. Yeah. And the one last week, the name I've just forgotten, it's going to say Minnie Mouse. Minnie Mansions. <laughs> Minnie Mansions. It's probably where Minnie Mouse lives. Yeah. Which I gave a six. And I don't know, it's kind of along a similar line to that one, I think, for me. Six. Six on the door. I'm but not six, the best. but it, it really it really annoys me. So <laughs> six, but it really annoys me. 
I don't. It's better than for me, at least. It's better than the Matt Berry album. Sure. Andy, are you going to piss all over their parade? Not massively. Like <laughs> I thought about the Matt Berry comparison as well, which I gave five. I do prefer the Matt Berry album to this. I'd rather listen to it. I just, it's not even that I like the sound more of the Matt Berry album. I just think the melodies were better. Like it's not super interesting, but I don't find this super interesting anyway. But I can't give it a really low mark because I think like it is kind of musically interesting at points. There just weren't any sort of touchstones that I actually liked. I can't get I can't give it higher than a four because four is average and I didn't like it, but I am gonna give it a four because there's there's hundreds of worse albums out there. And I think if it was on in the background, like I say, I wouldn't mind it. Yeah. Uh, but when I actively listen, I'm bored. So the four kind of seems about as generous as I can be. Fair enough. I still think it was an interesting pick, but uh, yeah, not so good on the on the album front this time out. <laughs> okay, so that is the album uh, put to rights. Uh, let's talk about the top five list. So this time out, we are looking at the top five black and white films. So my five is my only non-classic, which is Clerks. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a ton to say about it. Like, I think it's pretty rough and sort of ragged put-together film. I don't know. It's more about the dialogue than it is the plot. Like, the overarching plot is is pretty much irrelevant to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like a little, like, zeitgeist of an era rather than any sort of, you know, conversation on its meaning or it's just a little, little era piece that I just found hugely enjoyable. I quite like Kevin Smith, but I think this is my favourite Kevin Smith film by far. I think his choice to to shoot it in black and white was uh, like very much fit the kind of the vibe of the film, even if it doesn't necessarily fit the kind of era that it's set in. I I think that's exactly right. I think it really works for it. And I think it's in, as you say, like Kevin Smith's sort of sweet spot of films. I didn't realise it was his first film. I might have considered it for my debut film list, if I'd known. Yeah. Which I didn't. Yeah, would have been probably a good one. The first time I, I was sort of introduced to Clerks, actually through Clerks 2, but that's in full colour, so I couldn't pick it. Opposite for me, because I didn't watch Clerks 2 for a little bit. I heard it was coming out, and I saw it was in colour, and I thought it was going to be shit. Rough sequels. And then I watched Clerks 2 and thought, actually, this is still good. <laughs> I enjoy Clerks 2 a lot. Yeah, I, I like Clerks 2. <laughs> like, it just it, it carries on beautifully. Like, I have no issues with it. Yeah. And I thought, like, it's just going to lose all the charm and, like, mm-hmm. imagination of the first one. And, um, yeah, it manages to sort of modernise it, bigger budget. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a great little film. I'd watch it anytime. It's just... It's just an enjoyable romp. All righty. Okay, I'll throw in my number five then, which is uh, I've managed to get in another comics adaptation, as I will try and do every, each and every week. So my number five is Sin City. 
I considered uh, I considered that, and I didn't consider it strongly enough that it was a worry, but I didn't know how strict we were going on the black and white because it does have moments of colour. That is, yeah, I was about to say that. It's a slight cheat because there are some red and some yellow bits <laughs> throughout the film. I saw this film actually before reading the comic, and uh, I really enjoyed this on a first watch. Like, it is a hugely stylized, larger-than-life sort of noir full of just like the blackest shadows and the starkest whites and it's a film all about kind of contrast and it's really gross in places and it's really tense in places i think even mickey rock's good in it uh <laughs> i think it's the fact that it's kind of almost anthology in its style so it has a few different storylines i don't think any of the individual stories are interesting enough to kind of carry a full film but because it's made up of these kind of smaller marginally connected stories i think that helps it to really work did you not yeah. consider uh frank miller's follow-up the spirit oh the spirit i mean i've only watched maybe about six minutes of it and those six yeah, minutes we were so appalling <laughs> that i've never i've never gone back to try it again i mean there's a there's a sequel to sin city as well which is also just a complete bin fire um, yeah, it's, it's nowhere near as bad as the spirit looked like it was going to be had I carried on watching it. <laughs> yeah, for those those opening minutes were, God, they were bad. I mean, Frank Miller's a guy who, like, in the 80s was the the man of comic books. And most of the films that have been produced are mainly from, like, his work. And yeah. then he just went insane and just got really into very violent sex and really hating on uh, on Muslims and uh, yeah really really quite lost his way hmm. anyway number five nice. Sin City <laughs> nice way to end that <laughs> yeah. uh, a real downer sorry Frank but you've really went wrong there mate good pick though I really like Sin City really good film yeah I, I liked Sin City as well my number five is one I watched yesterday as I am wont to do try to try to watch a few it's one of one of the nice things about doing these. So it's called All Night Long. It's from 1962, directed by Basil Dearden. Have okay. you heard of this? I've never heard of it, no. No. It's got such a, a crazy concept. Right, so first of all, I'll just quickly list some of the cast, okay? So you've got Patrick McGowan in the lead, immediate win. Yeah. <laughs> Supported by Richard Attenborough. Not bad. And then the rest of the cast is, is is mostly made out of genuine jazz legends. So you've got Charles Mingus, Dave Brubeck, Johnny Dankworth, amongst others. And uh, it's basically a retelling of a fellow um, in a jazz setting. So Richard Attenborough is like this rich kind of producer guy. And he there's this jazz couple who've got married and it's their anniversary. So he like throws this massive jazz gig at his flat, basically, this lush apartment, gets all these jazz legends around, and Patrick McGowan plays the jazz drummer. And by the way, like, apparently he wasn't playing the drums, but you could have fooled me. It's like, it's mad. It's just like, <laughs> not only is he the prisoner, but he's also just like a fucking The awesome drummer. drummer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in, in effect, it's just uh, McGowan is, is thirsty for success of his own wants to form a band with the wife, basically, and the husband 
obviously doesn't want that. She doesn't want that. So he just decides, right, I'm just going to cause a rift. these two and it is just the a fellow story and he's iago and it's great like the music is phenomenal obviously yeah it was it was a massive massive surprise it sounds completely rad like i've never heard of it but uh yeah i'm completely sold yeah it sounds top it's genuinely good it's it's not one that you know it's just because i've just watched it i was like this is this is an awesome film I mean, is it, you could you can get both sides out of it if you if you have any time for jazz, it's got that alone. But actually, the way they retell the Othello kind of story is is pretty is pretty good. I I remember having to do Othello in school, and I had problems, you know, fucking obnoxious teenagers that I was, just like, oh, well, this Shakespeare guy seems like a bit of an idiot to me because it's all coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but, he actually like sort of makes it kind of plausible and everyone kind of gets their their just desserts at the end of it as well which is kind of nice but yeah i'd recommend it super cool yeah sold andy what have you got in the number four slot uh number four i toy with this a bit because i don't know if it's still acceptable but i've gone with uh manhattan uh woody allen film Oh, I see. Is it not acceptable because it's Woody Allen? Or... Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> he married his own daughter. Yeah. Yeah, and quite a lot of uh, allegations of abuse. And um... But let's move on from that. Yeah, let's, let's yeah. art artist this argument we're and, not, uh, and look at just the art. We're not, a, uh, we're not a podcast that deals with the big issues. Or any um, issues. So, yeah, Woody Allen, hateable. But... Manhattan, I think Woody Allen is, I mean, all Woody Allen films are kind of similar and they don't always work for me. And I think Manhattan is his best film and it also happens to be in black and white. Yeah. Um, I think it's like, like the cinema, like he's clearly got this sort of love-hate relationship with New York. And I think like the cinematography in the film is just, gorgeous like the film is gorgeous start to finish um and it's all orchestrated by like it, it's a full like gershwin like score to it that's cool yeah just like beautifully shot like there's a sort of plot to it with this kind of love triangle awkwardly woody allen is dating this like 17 year old maybe and um sort of befriends this Gonna say older woman, but she's basically just a woman his age, um, <laughs> like more appropriate for him. And yeah, there's a really nice sort of balance between kind of comedy and romance, I guess, in that. Yeah, but I think the plot is kind of irrelevant. Like it's just a is the journey of the film. Like it's full of kind of wit and satire in the sort of dialogue. But yeah, I think the film is just kind of beautiful, start to finish. Like the the what happens like during the journey isn't the important thing to me i just i just kind of enjoyed the journey of it a huge amount i must admit i don't think i've seen any Woody films I don't I've, seen, think. I've seen a few and i think like annie hall's a good film um I, there's a few that are, are generally genuinely really good but i think manhattan if you're going to watch one you should watch manhattan like it is uh yeah just beautiful yeah 
it's it's just that thing now. I, I find it tough to um to do it. I have seen some Woody Allen films in the past, and it's kind of different when you've already seen them. But so I'll say, like, I think I probably haven't watched it for I don't know, maybe like five years. I'm probably not going to go back and watch it again. Um, no. Always exceptions, though, aren't there? Like, would you watch if Roman Plansky made another film? Would probably you watch not. It? No, I'm not going to let it ruin how much. I really liked that film. Yeah, fair play. I mean, we should revisit that at some point. Yeah. Just that whole discussion. The art artist boundary. Okay, so my number four, I actually kind of had two for number four that fit a very similar vein because I thought by now one of you might have said one of these two. But I'm going to put my stake in the ground and say number four is the third man uh oh, <laughs> have I taken someone else? Uh, I could have picked the other one, maybe too late now. No, go for it. What was uh, the other one? Uh, Maltese Falcon, which again kind of occupy a fairly similar space in being like very classic film noir, detective mystery, espionage, a little bit, I guess, in the way of conspiracy. Not, not like the film we've watched today but it's just so cool like everything about it is just like it is tense but it's also casual like the the way people approach problems is just as if they already know what they're going to do and they just need to tell everybody else there's a i don't know a certain authority to the characters that i think is quite appealing in uh in those types of films but uh I think the third man might just stand out to me, maybe because of Orson Welles, to be fair. He's just weird and cool. <laughs> I, w- I watched it today. Um, nice. I've seen it before, but many years ago. <clears throat> but the, the remarkable thing is, it's um, the build-up to his character, Harry Lyme, is like you already think this character's a legend, but that, that puts a certain amount of pressure on him because... He's got a lot to live up to. And all it takes is the light going on and Orson Welles' face. It's just like, what a, what a man. And it turns out that he's an absolute prick and you still come out of it thinking, what a man. What a guy. <laughs> I think I watched, because I've not seen it for years, and I think I watched that and Citizen Kane pretty closely together. It's funny that he made Citizen Kane Kane and then apparently like struggled with that his whole life because he never made a better film because I think The Third Man is a better film I think so as well (laughs) a much much better (laughs) film I quite enjoyed Citizen Kane but I don't understand why it's the top of every hundred top films list like The Third Man is uh, is superb he didn't direct The Third Man oh okay Ah. fair enough maybe that's uh, that's why he's talking about directing Maybe that's why it's a better film. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he's not not listening. Oh Christ! He'll be in right trouble. (laughs) It's it's a it's a great pick though, and in terms of black and white, it's a it's a magnificent example. Because I don't think the film would be anywhere near as effective in color. No, yeah, it adds to shadows and creepy, murky underworld. Yeah, it's got a sublime atmosphere to it. Right. 
late late change then for me, <laughs> um, which I'm actually fine with. So, right number four, I will go for the Pumpkin Eater, which is a film by Jack Clayton from 1964. Okay, again, you've you've stumped me. Me too. Um, it's one I just got on Blu-ray a few months back, starring Anne Bancroft and Peter Finch. And it's just like a gorgeous film. It's it's one that you sort of hear the plot synopsis, and there isn't much of a synopsis. Anne Bancroft is basically married with her third husband, has five kids, and it's just basically about her kind of breakdown, loneliness, depression paranoia uh because it transpires that you know he's been cheating on her or allegedly cheating on her or whatever and it just sounds quite plain but it's uh it's just magnificently shot it's one of those movies where there's the framing is i don't normally notice framing and shot composition particularly but almost every other shot is just wow that like you know if you just took a picture of that and hung it on your wall you'd be like satisfied and um and bank well the acting all round but particularly Anne Bancroft who I'd only really seen in The Graduate uh, she immediately shot up to like kind of one of my favorite actresses she's phenomenal and it's got that super effective thing where it doesn't have much music and it just has two or three musical pieces which it brings in at various scenes and it's it's so effective and it's one where I finished it and it's what I can't fault that film at all. I think it's it's pretty much perfect. And yet I don't I'm not rushing to rewatch it. There's actually some kind of darker stuff in there. There's some like kind of domestic violence that's um quite for the time probably quite hardcore, I guess. It's quite full on. But it does have levity in it as well. It's not just, you know, full on depressing. It's got James Mason hamming it up as well, which is always good. <laughs> nice. Sure. That, it sounds cool, though. All right. So you mentioned it on the uh, on the text, Mark, about like who wants to talk about what well, you said, Psycho. But um, all the rest of my picks are just the absolutely down, down the line classic. So be prepared for that. So Fair. my number three is It's a Wonderful Life. Lovely stuff. I'm not a big Christmas man, to be honest. I don't uh, don't do any of that big Christmas stuff. The last couple of years, I've had super quiet Christmas, doing almost no traditional Christmas traditions, and I always watch "It's a Wonderful Life" because <laughs> uh, it's just it's just perfect little film, isn't it? And it's a Christmas classic. It just seems an excuse to watch it. Yeah, I mean it's a lovely tale and it's a very classic one, isn't it? It's a it's perfect vibe for Christmas. Is it's that sort of? I mean, it is a, a Christmas carol, but um, yeah, but like also like the hero's journey where he falls down and then through processes he's lifted back up again, and yeah, it's just got a really nice arc to it. Yeah, falls Jimmy Stewart falls to despair and then uh, and then works his way back. That's kind yeah. of it, and it's, it's just just incredibly endearing. James Stewart is outstanding in most things that he's been in. It's quite a simple little plot. Like, there's not a lot to it, and there's not a lot that's outstanding 
in other respects, kind of cinematography wise or musically wise, or yeah, I, I think I think it's kind of it's a character piece that is entirely carried by him, and it works because he is outstanding in it. Mm. But I like, it's like comfort it's, food cinema, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's just, just real nice. Yeah, it's entirely based on sort of emotional attachment to the film, I guess. Yeah, um, I think particularly if that holds some like child. Nostalgia as well. Yeah, uh, that always adds adds a little bit of extra Christmas spice. Very nice pick. That's a boring choice, but <laughs> uh, well, my number three is a film that I've I think I've picked in a different list, um, so I'm not going to say too much about it. But my number three is the Manchurian Candidate, but uh, the '60s Sinatra, and obviously black and white one, not the Denzel Washington remake. Yeah, it's just another really great, like, Cold War brainwashing secret that Sinatra is superb in and Angela Lansbury is superb in and a guy who plays opposite Frank Sinatra, whose name I can't remember, is superb in. Lawrence Harvey. Thank you. and But he's excellent. And, yeah, it's an excellent film. But as I say, I brought it up before, so I'm just going to leave it at that. Nah, great, great pick. Um, I find it so rewatchable. So I know I'd moved on, but <laughs> <laughs> I could just I can, watch, I can watch that film tons. Like the performances are just super charismatic. Like I say, I think I mentioned this probably the last time I brought it up. I think Sinatra just did everything in one take, and it wasn't because like he was a grump person refused to do it again. It's just it just nailed it just over nailed and over it. again. Yeah, classic show. You did bring that up, and I believe you, but I still find it kind of hard to believe. I mean, yeah, it could totally be hyperbole, but I choose to believe it nonetheless. So uh, I didn't comment on It's a Wonderful Life because, to my great shame, I've not actually seen it, uh, believe it or not. I was about to say, if anyone's not seen it, but you were sort of nodding, <laughs> so I didn't I didn't say that. Well, you should watch yeah, it. No, it's it. just... There's probably better films out there, but there is not a film that's more indeed. No, <laughs> it's very uplifted. Yeah, and I, I love James Stewart. I mean, there's there's no reason for me not to have watched it. I don't know why I haven't. But um, it's funny because my number three is by the same director, which is Frank Capra, I believe. It is, yeah. Um, I think it was several years earlier. It's 1934. There's a film called It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah, I watched it with my dad. It's a good film. Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat nostalgia led this one because it was just one as a fairly young teenager or whatever. I was just channel flicking and I think it was about 10, 15 minutes in and I just left it on. And obviously at that age, you just think, oh, this thing's going to be old and black and white and rubbish. And even at that age, I just found it like really charming it's just a screwball comedy where you know guy meets a lady and uh they kind of fall in love but there's obviously other other complications and it's it's not laugh out loud funny but i rewatched it like again this well last year or something and massively enjoyed it, it holds really up fun yeah um don't really have much else to say about it really it's just you know very very easy watch yeah i mean so i've watched it once maybe 20 years ago 
So I can't throw in a huge amount of comments because I don't remember it that well. But but I think I sort of presume everything that he has ever made is just charming and lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds of, like that. Like uh, you kind of figure that, I don't know, maybe plot is irrelevant and uh, mm-hmm. like I'm just along for the journey. Yeah. Be good. All right, so my number two, I'm literally going to pick the film that Mark referenced that there's no point talking about, which is Alfred Hitchcock film, Psycho. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, yes. I think it's pretty pretty all right. I don't... <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about it for ages. I should say, like, I think the music in this film is the thing that got me into film music. Like, I think Bernard <laughs> Herrmann's score for this is phenomenal and it yeah i can't think of examples where the score has like such a big impact i love the fact that the first half of the film sets up a story that is just a complete dead end yep i mean he's called the like master of suspense for a reason isn't he i i think there are plenty of other films i could have picked and i know that psycho is a unimaginative pick because it's probably his most famous, but yeah, but it's, it's got to be there though. I mean, it's you know someone had to have it. Yeah, but it's also um, outstanding. Like it's just yeah, that's it. It's, it's been talked to death, but it for a reason. It's it's superb. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm always grateful that in the Psycho remake they managed to put in a masturbation scene that wasn't in the original, and I thought that's what mm. it was sorely sorely lacking. <laughs> you know what's you know what's interesting? I read about about Hitchcock when he was making it. He used a production uh, team that were the production team from his TV series. Is it called Introducing mm-hmm. Hitchcock? I can't remember, but it's like a That's series of like... short, short stories. He just made like North by Northwest and kind of bigger budget things. So he, like they had the access to kind of bigger budget technologies and film crew and everything else which he chose not to use because he didn't think it sort of fit the vibe that he was going for for the film and it's the same reason that he filmed it in black and white and and he also said that he thought that the like the blood like particularly the most famous scene from it the sort of shower scene the kind of blood from it was a bit much and that it would kind of like scare his audience too much and take them away from the film and it felt like showing it in black and white made it more accessible Mm. which I kind of get a little bit like sort of slightly less vivid and more shadowy it doesn't take much of a change I think to trick the brain into it being reminding you that it's fiction Yeah, where I, I think yeah if it's very realistic even by that time standards of filmmaking yeah I can see that being a problem Yeah, for sure Psycho 2 is pretty good, by the way. Surprisingly passable. Yeah. Um, it's worth a shout. Right, okay. Should I do my number two? Yeah. Yes, please. My my numero two is the Mel Brooks film, Young Frankenstein. Love a bit of Mel Brooks. I love Mel Brooks. I think this and Blazing Saddles are probably my, like, two crowning films which i think really leans into nostalgia as i watched these over and over again as a kid and all like me and my friends would quote all the 
all the bits from it. But um, sorry, how old are you? <laughs> I am. I am one hundred and forty. Yeah, when we were older, you, you and your friends used to watch like Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein over and over again. Absolutely, yeah. Not like Austin Powers. Or... <laughs> Austin Powers was in there, but you know, I had a lot of time as a kid. <laughs> I mean, now I make a podcast about watching films. And don't get paid for it. I got loads of time. But it is a really funny film in the vein of kind of a spoof of, well, Frankenstein mostly, but horror films in, in a broader sense. It's got Gene Wilder in it, who is perhaps one of the greatest people to ever be on screen. I'm always in a good mood when Gene Wilder's on screen. He's one of the greatest comedy actors, isn't he? And his duo with Richard Pryor as well. In a, did, did they make three films together? See No Evil, Hear No Evil is... It's, it's one of the best films on the worst premise. <laughs> one a of blind, blind and one blind of them's guy dead. and a deaf guy that half hear, see a murder. Awful. So good. Worth noting, of course, Gene Wilder's also in Blazing Saddles. So, you know, big kudos points there. But that's not in black and white. So it's just full of, like, super quotable puns. Um, I think the, the comedy in it still holds up today because it is, it's silly and it's slapstick and it doesn't rely on the age it was written in. Brilliant. Yeah, Mel Brooks is the absolute man. Not discreet, nice. anybody. Good pick. I haven't seen it again. I feel bad. To be fair, but I've seen, I don't think, any of your list so far. So, you know, it's tip me. <laughs> well let's let's make that four for four then uh because i've had to make a substitution i've made two substitutions in fact right just to spite you for no other reason really i'm going to put an orson wells film at number two and therefore that, that makes it better than the uh the first man <laughs> 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 the lady from shanghai it's um, it's a fucking weird film, this one. I think um, it was one of the many examples where apparently he had a way longer cut and producers got involved and, you know, tore it to shreds effectively. But what's left, I actually really enjoyed. It's um, kind of young Orson Welles. I don't think it was that long after Citizen Kane. And um, it's... Uh, yeah, just a mental film noir, which ends in like a fairground in a in a hall of mirrors, and it's got loads of awesome shots in it. Again, his uh, I, th- I think there's always that thing with the third man, where in the third man there's a load of Dutch angles and off kilter sort of compositions like throughout, and I think that's why a lot of people think. Orson Welles directed it or at least had some involvement with how it was made because he he always seems to do that stuff and he's got a Mm. ton of it in Lady from Shanghai. There's moments in it, there's characters who just turn up and they just feel like they're in a completely different film, which may annoy the hell out of some people, but I loved that. It just kept it super, super interesting. And he's got like a mad accent in it. (laughs) (laughs) He already sports such a cool natural accent. I know, I like... Well, that's it, yeah. I was disappointed in the, in, in the first few minutes. What the hell is he doing? He's got, like, the coolest natural speaking <laughs> voice ever. But again, it's it's awesome, so he, he wins you over by the end. I think um, Rita Hayworth's in it as well. And 
yeah, she's she's quite fetching. So that it's another one matter. not seen, but another one that I'm interested in. Like the whole Hall of Mirror sings is really like deliciously pulpy. Yeah, it's it's just an oddity. I mean, in all fairness, it's it's not one of the top five black and white films, but it's way way more interesting than the vast majority of movies in general. For sure. Um, yeah, check it out. Cool, cool, cool. I think it's the big moment, Andy. It's time for your number one. Um, well, you referenced it earlier. Oh, dear. So I'm glad that you didn't pick it. I obviously rate it more than you as well because you referenced it at, like, number four or five. I don't know. Something way down the list. Maltese uh, Vulcan. But it's, uh, it, it is, yeah. Maltese Vulcan. It is good I, I didn't pick it. I mean, I, Mark suffered because of it, but... <laughs> mm. I love that film. Again, I watched it when I was younger with my dad and I've watched it since. And I think it's kind of, it follows a lot of those sort of private eye tropes. And it's important to remember that it was kind of the film that established those tropes. Like they weren't tropes and then the film was made. (laughs) And they exist. It's Humphrey Bogart, who I think is just uh, like so charismatic in everything that he's in, and he's a like private detective who you kind of get the feeling that he solves most things by not speaking very much and just observing everything. And he's not a like massively likable character either. He has a ton of great lines that are just like wholly unacceptable in sort of modern cinema. <laughs> uh, I wrote down my favourite one, which is uh, when I, I slap you, <laughs> when I slap you, you'll take it and like it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh my goodness. The the reason it didn't, well, the reason I kind of picked the third man is I also watched the Maltese Falcon like years ago. Again, probably with you, Mark. Um but I haven't had the opportunity to rewatch it again. So I just didn't remember it well enough to, to kind of I've factor it, it in. Oh, then maybe not with you, buddy. <laughs> but I have seen it a long time ago and I just, I just couldn't remember enough about it to justify it as a pick, but I do remember yeah. thoroughly enjoying it. And I think that's a great choice for your number one. Mm. I must admit for my number one, I have the same pitfall is that this was a, debut that i didn't realize at the time but you actually brought it up mark well angry man and my number one is 12 angry men you know i was going to pick that as number one and i was so confident that you were going to pick it (laughs) probably as number one or at least in your list that i thought i just won't pick it it was absolutely the first film that came to mind when you offered the list it would there was uh there was little doubt in my mind absolutely outstanding I just it's again it's a, it's so perfectly paced and scripted and acted and it has to be because it all takes place in one room about one subject like there isn't there is a development because it's about one man convincing 11 others well, men and women but 11 other people to sort of change their mind and you have all these different archetypes of these jurors who either think he's guilty for some, for some sort of prejudice, just don't care, want to be somewhere else. And uh, 
just the way it's plotted out and you get fed little bits of information. You don't even see the court case. Like you just see it from the jurors discussion room and you learn it in piecemeal. And it's just great. Like you, the moments when he has an argument that like he'll pull the rug out of from under a character who's otherwise been a bit of a bit of an arsehole up to this point. And even in a very quiet, stoic film, it's kind of got those punch the air moments where you just think like, oh, you've got him. You've got him now. <laughs> I love it. I love that film. I could watch it all the time. Yeah. There's, there's no disagreements from us at all there by sounds of it. Yeah, there's a fair few films in these lists which are just basically, you know, five out of five perfect mm. films, really. Um, Age is not a barrier, is it? Like, if it was good in 1962 or whatever. <laughs> that's it, yeah, absolutely. It's a great <laughs> film. Like, it, it, it is almost, like, perfect film. Like, it would be a 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah, that's it. Like I say, we've uh, we've never given a 10 as of yet to a film so just for any audience who is listening there's your example <laughs> there's your benchmark yeah see i lost my one and two so it is a bit a bit tricky that does make it hard i have a long list here all right uh number one we'll go with uh night of the hunter oh very nice and charles lawton bob Mitchum. Um, yep it's one of Robert my granddad's Mitchum. absolute favourite films. He loved Robert Mitchum. Again, I, I think we probably watched it together uh, at some point. Yeah, likely. It's it's definitely one... I don't, I'm okay having it at number one because it's definitely one that the black and white plays into it hugely. Mm. Super atmospheric again. Like, really good performance by Robert Mitchum, as you say. And it's got these flights of fancy into this the dream sequence down the river yeah, where it almost goes into a different film entirely is, is stunning. It's just fairy tale, like in the middle of this pretty dark movie, really it's, it's been put in there as a substitute, but I'm okay with that. It's perfectly worthy. I think for a number one spot, I, I don't know if it's entirely true, but my understanding is the whole like love and hate tattooed on the knuckles Mm-hmm. has its origins in this film like this is the first example of it that has then become a kind of criminal trope i might be wrong about that but that's my understanding no, no, i think you're you're probably right i wish i had some more to say about it but it's it's again it's it's been many years that's why it wasn't initially in the five but it's like it, a, it's a great. almost like a sort of slow creeping home invader isn't it as a criminal after some gold that he thinks he's buried in a mm-hmm. garden it was his cellmate the husband who dies and he kind of insinuates himself in the family to get his hands on this gold and it's just yeah just super creepy and really insidious yeah good no, premise it's, very much sold it's very very worth watching for sure cool um i don't know if you guys have got honorable mentions i mean there was uh I kind of resisted putting it in on the basis that we talked about it so recently, but Edward. Yeah, I considered it. There was Raging Bull as well. I've got to admit, mm-hmm. it's, it's, despite it being lauded so much, it's not one of my favourite Scorsese's Raging Bull. So yeah, I put it in my long list, but it, yeah, just didn't quite make the cut. Doctor Strangelove, 
that was on my end as well. Shout. Yeah. Um, I was tossing up between that and Clerks, basically, as my comedy pick. Sure, yeah. It's classic, classic sell, isn't it? And, uh, and I put Metropolis in the long list, not because it's, like, necessarily a brilliant film um, from an entertainment standpoint, but it's one of those fairly historically important pieces of cinema. Um, so again, it's not, not that would make Absolutely. my personal top five list, but I thought it might be worthy of some mention nonetheless. Yeah. hundred percent. Do you have, do you guys have anything else that didn't uh, kill a mockingbird? Oh, of course. Oh, fuck Why me. didn't that come into my purview? That was a great film. Okay. I won't go into any details with these really at all, but I kind of thought there was a chance one of you might mention Pi Aronofsky. Considered it, but... A Matter of Life and Death, the Powell Pressburg movie with David Niven. Oh, my God, and the life and death of Colonel Blimp. Again, completely missed my, like, purview. Why didn't that not come up? Blimp's colour, I think. Oh, is it? Okay, then maybe that wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have passed. But those Powell Pressburger films are great. Yeah, they're, they're really good, aren't they? Uh, seconds, the John Frankenheimer sci-fi movie from the 60s with Rock oh, Hudson. Yeah, oh, need to meet that one. It's really good, really good. Another Fritz Lang one, uh, The Big Heat, which is just a, a classic noir, just dead entertaining. A yeah. Richard Lester film um, called The Knack, it's like a kind of British comedy, but it's, it's he did the Beatles films and the, he's just got such a visual panache. There's loads of physical comedy and just super creative. It's super fun to watch. Rad. Um, yeah, sounds cool. I haven't seen The Morty's Falcon, which is absurd, but I've seen a later kind of send-up of that by the same director, John Houston, and with Humphrey Bogart called Beat the Devil, which... Um, a lot of people seem to hate it. I thought it was great. It was super, uh, super different. You've seen The Big Sleep? I've not seen The Big Sleep, but that's another one that's going to be great, isn't it? I don't know why I just thought of it, but that should have been in my long list. Although I never would have picked it because it's Humphrey Bogart. And yeah, you to say Humphrey Bogart as a PI. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's still great. Sorry, oh, well, quickly finish. I wrote down way too many. A Michael Winner film, The System, mm-hmm. with Oliver Reed. Uh, the Hustler, with Paul Newman. A Razorhead. Yeah, shout. Uh, the Hill, Sydney Limit film with Sean Connery. Uh, Strangers on the Train. You could, yeah. actually say, you could mention a ton of Hitchcock, really. Yeah. Great choice. Um, yeah. Oh, I'll just call it there. There's, oh, sorry, one more, one more. Um Station Six Sahara, which is um, by a guy called Seth Holt and um, has like a young Dan Home Elliot in, amongst others, but really, really good psychological thriller about these group of people who work in like an oil well out in the middle of desert away from everyone. It's just a group of like six or seven guys and the tension between them just being stuck together in isolation and halfway through the film, a car crashes and this um this lady basically enters into the fray and it's sort of you know everything boils over because they're all vying for her affections kind of thing really really good film which i'd never heard of i just randomly saw it a few months back and it was great superb well i mean 
one thing is you've highlighted loads of stuff that I just completely forgot to even consider, which has made yep. me a little bit sad. Me but you've also, between the pair of you, probably introduced about seven or eight films I haven't seen and uh, and will hope to check out. Oh, so five from Mark and two from me. I'll take it. Yeah, I think that's the that's probably the uh, the swing. <laughs> <laughs> Righto. Well, that is all from us again at Screen and Needle Podcast. Next week is a first for us. We're having a guest, uh, a guest guest for the first time. You can tell it's the first time. <laughs> um, Andy, <laughs> what is our guest picking for his film, his album, and his top five? I should say our guest has a name, and his name is Sam. His name is Sam, yeah. He's, uh, he's sent him over. Uh, so the film we're going to be watching is Midsummer. Usually I do a little spiel about it's the 2016 film, Midsummer, but I don't know anything about any of these picks. So you know, it's choices. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the film is Midsummer. The album is, I think, Tongue. And then we saw Land. Sorry if the pronunciation is very off there. Uh, and the top five is top five horror films. All righty. Well, join us next week where we'll be talking about them and we'll be introducing our special guest guest, Sam. Bye-bye.